0: Well, I've entitled the message, uh, Fearing God. We're going to look at Psalms again, 67 and 68, uh, as this idea. And I want to begin with Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, where it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And, And so from a biblical point of view, then for us to actually have wisdom, to have understanding, it begins with fearing the Lord. But there's all kinds of pushback against fearing the Lord. And I've heard all kinds of argumentation about, what well, we shouldn't really fear the Lord, and it's more respect, and it's, a, and it's a nuanced thing. I can understand that. We can talk about that. But as I was thinking about this, an illustration came to my mind, and that was the ocean. So if you think about the ocean, if you are a wise person, you have a fear of the ocean. You, you realize that the ocean is dangerous, and the, the ocean is not changing, it doesn't matter how many you know, conferences we have and the ocean should really change its ways. And the ocean should be different than it is. No, what happens is we realize the ocean isn't going to change. It's not going to accommodate us. But here's the reality. If we would accept the ocean for what it is, then we can actually enjoy it if we realize there's certain limitations to what we could do, there's certain inherent dangers, and I'm going to accept that. And with that in mind, I'm going to seek to enjoy the ocean. Some of my best memories have been in the ocean. I love to think about it. I was a marine biology major for my first two years of college. And and so this is something that's, that's very near and dear to my heart. But it's this reality that if we would just adapt to how the ocean does things, we can enjoy it. But, so, but it's so weird, we fully accept that the ocean is not going to change. But we come to God, and we say, well, God should change. I don't like how he's doing things. I don't like how this makes me feel. I'm going to figure out a way to change it. Well, if the ocean won't change, and it was made by God, how can we change God? <laughs> And so we should adapt that same attitude that we have toward enjoying the ocean, toward enjoying God. Say, God is who he is. God is the way that he is. He is unchangeable. The the theological word is he's immutable. And so instead of seeking to, in my, my own mind, come up with a God of my own making that fits my own desires, my own fallen nature, say, I want to know God as he actually is. I want to know who he is, what he's like, and then instead of seeking to falsely adapt him to me, I'm going to seek by the power of his spirit to adapt my life to him. And then what happens is just like you accept the the way the ocean does things and now you can enjoy it, when you accept God for who he is and you adapt yourself to his rules, to his ways, then all of a sudden you can find yourself enjoying him. And so I hope that makes some sense. I hope that opens you up to it. Um, I'm I'm free to meet with you after service for argumentation or if any ways that I was unclear. But that was just something that the Lord put on my heart that I wanted to share this morning as we move into this common subject of fearing the Lord. And let's jump into Psalm 67. Psalm 67, it says, To the chief musician on stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. Now notice here, we're not told who wrote this psalm. So we 're not sure who wrote this we're, we're not we don 't know, but we understand that the Holy Spirit inspired it so let 's start with here in verse one. It says "God be merciful to us and bless us, and cause His face to shine upon us Salam." So and so we just sing this, right, and I appreciate how Sarah works the, the songs together for what we 're going through, and it sometimes it 's funny, even as I throw her for a loop and i don 't teach what she thought I was going to teach next, somehow the Lord still works it out somehow. <laughs> The, the, the music still matches up. And so this was a blessing. It was a priestly bre- blessing that the priests were to pray over the people. And so we have it here picked up in the Psalms. And i want to break it down for just a minute. That word merciful there, it means to show favor or to take pity on. So for you and I, as we come to God, we should ask God to show favor to us, to ask him to show pity on us. You see, when we come to God, we don't come as equals. We come to God, we don't come as, as someone who has a right to be there. We come to, as people who are below him, people who he has condescended to reach out to. In fact, if you're familiar with the, the incarnation of, of the second person of the Trinity becoming fully man, to, that's actually called the humiliation. The incarnation is called the, the humiliation. Why? Because think about it, for infinite God to become finite man, to take on that humanity, that's a humiliation. But here's the good news. We're told in Hebrews that because of what Jesus Christ has done, we can come boldly to the throne of grace to find mercy and grace in time of need. Well, guess what? You and I are always in need. It's always a time of need for us. So we can come boldly for that mercy, not because of what you and I have done, not because we were really good yesterday or this or that the other, but because of Christ's finished work. Because of Christ's finished work, we can find this mercy, and we can find that help, and he'll have pity on us. And then we also see here in verse 1, this asking for him to bless us. Hey, bless us. This, This phrase, bless us, it really means to provide for all that we need provide for everything that we need, and then we see cause his face to shine upon us. It, it really could be translated something like this, to look upon us with joy. Okay, you've, you've all been in situations where your authority has looked upon you with joy, right? Your, your parent looked upon you and you just could see in their face, they're proud of you and all that. And you've also been in a situation where your authority has not been happy with you. <laughs> It has, has not enjoyed how you've done life. And so this is really that prayer of God have joy in us, look upon us with joy. We sang earlier, you know, that he is for us. He is for us. It is, he is for us. Now, uh, please understand, anytime we sing a song or things we, we want to kind of understand the, the ramifications of it, he's for us for our ultimate good. He's not for us in doing whatever we want. Okay, when, when your child you know, say, goes running into a busy parking lot, you're not just saying, well, I'm just for you. No, you grab that child because you're for it in a greater way. You're not for that child running through a parking lot. You're for that child being safe. You're for that child being healthy. So it's important for us to, 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 to understand this, that we're seeking this, this God's mercy and God's blessing and his face to shine upon us. And we're asking really for God to line us up with what he wants, what, what he desires, now, to what end, though? As we kind of think about verse 1, it leads into verse 2. Notice that your way may be known on earth and your salvation among the nations. So as we put these two things together, it's awesome, right? God, be merciful to us, bless us, cause your face to shine upon us, look with us on us with joy. Why? That your way may be known on the earth, that your salvation among the nations. In other words, God, put your blessing upon us so that we can reach the lost, Put your blessing upon us so we can reach those nations. See, there's there's often a confusion about God that somehow in the New Testament, that's when God wanted to start reaching the Gentiles. That's not how it's been. God's always wanted to reach the Gentiles. And we see this here, this desire by the psalmist that God would use the nation of Israel to reach the Gentiles. And so God's way of doing that under the old covenant was that Israel was to be the city on a hill. Israel was to be this light to the nations. And as they shone, then what happens, other people would be drawn to them. And we understand this. Think about it from just kind of a secular mindset. You know, when it comes to prosperity and peace and opportunity, that's, that's the United States of America. People come to the United States of America with the hope of a better life and prosperity and more freedom and all of those things. That's what they come for. That's what Israel was to be in a spiritual way. Israel was to be a place where they're walking with the Lord and they know the Lord and then people would be drawn to them. By and large, Israel failed in that because they were self-centered and self-seeking and went after other things and other gods. And so what we have under the new covenant is something different. Instead of just being this city on a hill individually, you have these believers who go out and become these individual cities on a hill, if you will. And they reach people and then those people go out and be cities on a hill and that's what we're to be. You see, as you and I are walking with the Lord, as we're 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 you know having experiencing his mercy and his blessing and we're having fellowship with him and he's refining us, then what happens as we go out, then people are drawn to us. Now, yes, some people are gonna be repelled by us. Some people are not gonna to want to have anything to do with us as we walk closer and closer to the Lord. That's the reality. But there are gonna be those that are drawn. They're going to be those who brought forth. And so that's what's going on here. And the lesson I kind of really want you you guys to get from verse 2 is as a reminder that God always wanted to reach people with the message of salvation, always. God has always had a heart to reach people. And then for us, under the new covenant, the command is clear for us. In the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verse 19, says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. There's not a person that you can't in good conscience reach with the gospel. It doesn't matter where they're from. It doesn't matter what they look like. It doesn't matter what their background is. I love the way Paul put it there in Athens in Acts chapter 17, verses 26 and 27. I'll read it for you. It says, and he has made from one blood, that's from Adam and Eve, he says, from one blood, every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Now, many of you take notes, and I appreciate the fact that you take notes, and I want to encourage you as you take notes to, to go this week, and those notes you took, pray through them. And pray these verses... And see, well, man, what does it mean that God set things up in such a way that people would reach out to him and try to, 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 you know, receive him, to get to know him? These are wonderful, wonderful truths, because what happens when you and I take into our hearts that God has set things up for all time so that the maximum number of people can be saved, that gives us great confidence in the Lord. And you know what it does? It says to me, I just want to get on board with what the Lord's already doing. I don't have to sit, you know, at my desk praying, God, if you would only love the lost. If you would only just care about people. That's him. He loves the lost. And what he's offering you and I, the opportunity is to get on board with what he's already doing. He's offering us this wonderful opportunity for a life of purpose and meaning as we line it up with him. Let's move on to verses three and four now. It says, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Oh, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations on the earth. Selah. And so, so here's this vision that the psalmist has. This is the psalmist's desire that all nations would become believers. That every nation on earth would be a nation of believers and that the people would praise the Lord together. You know what this is? You know what this is a desire for? This is a prayer for your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's that's the prayer. That's the desire. You know, one of the things that that I I love most about this fellowship, as imperfect as we are, because any organization or group of people that are made up of sinners is is gonna be a mess, (laughs) all right? But one of the things I love most about this is when people come together, they genuinely seem to want to be around each other. They, they seem to enjoy fellowship together. They, they seem to want to say hi to one another and praise the Lord together. And so think about what we can experience just in this little building that you'll remember. It used to be a woman's clothing store. <laughs> one price clothing was the name of it. That just in this little bit, we can experience people on the same page praising the Lord together. Imagine if all the nations did. Imagine if everywhere you went didn't have to lock your doors. You didn't have to worry about what was going on. Because people, you know, here's the thing is, you don't only have to imagine it's coming. Okay? During the millennial kingdom, this is what it's going to look like. When Jesus Christ rules and reigns from Jerusalem, this is what it's going to be like. And then after that time is over, you can read on your own in Revelation 21 and 22, there's coming a new heaven and a new earth with righteousness dwells. There'll be no more pain and no more sorrow and no more death. The former things have passed away. All things have become new. That day is coming. Now, here's the thing. You and I can pine away for that day. And we could sit in a corner of our house and say, I just can't believe it's not yet. Okay, we could do that. Or we can say, you know what? That may not be how it's for the nations. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. It can say, I'm going to be that person. I want to pray that prayer. Lord, your will be done in my life. Your kingdom come in my heart. Maybe everyone else in this world is not going to serve you. But I'm going to choose to. You be King in residence in my heart. And then what happens, the, the Lord, do you think he's going to say, well, one person, it's really not what I'm looking for. That's all God's looking for. God saves individuals. With Jesus, when he died on the cross, he didn't die for a mass of humanity. He died for individuals. He died for you specifically on that cross. And so when you and I participate in what God's doing, when you say, Lord, line my heart up with your heart, all of a sudden change happens. And we begin to influence people for the good and we begin to experience that kingdom life now. Let's move on to verses five through seven here. It says, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. Let the earth, then the earth shall yield her increase. God, our own God shall bless us. God shall bless us and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. And so the, the big takeaway from these verses is that praising God brings blessing. Praising God brings, brings blessing. It brings a personal blessing of joy and peace and, and in a, in a greater fellowship or intimacy with God. But it brings blessing to those around you. Okay, I have, you know, praying, asking the Lord to forgive me and all the things I've done wrong. And I, I know, and many of you guys here are witnesses in here that I've, I've been a, uh, a bummer to you. <laughs> if you know me well, you know that many times in my life, because of getting in my own head, I've been a bummer to you. I brought you down, right? It's because I refuse to praise. But you and I, when we, when we praise the Lord, then what happens, we become a, a, a lifter of others. We become a blessing to others as we move on. So praising God brings blessing to ourselves and to others. And so the more people that, who are in right relationship with the Lord, the better things will be. Okay, I, I heard this advice a long time ago about marriage, and it was given this way see if you can outserve your spouse. Okay, see if you can outserve your spouse. Then just do that, just whatever you can do to serve your spouse. And really, that's good advice because imagine a family situation where everyone in the family is trying to outdo one another and loving each other better and serving each other better. All of a sudden, you're going to be like, wow, we're actually getting along, we're playing Catan. And we're not fighting? <laughs> How can this be? It's miracles are for today, right? You're going to realize that. and, and so, so, or, or maybe monopoly, you know, any of those things. Okay, but, but this is what happens. But here's the problem for you and I. We want to take the word of God. We want to take these exhortations. And we want to take them home and say, I know who needs this. I want to apply it to somebody else. And what the Lord has shown me over and over again is is you can offer, and you can share, and you can encourage, and you can exhort, but the only person you can truly change is yourself. The only person you can decide these things for is yourself. And so for you and I, let's share truth with others and, and do that, but ultimately let's seek the Lord to change us. Now, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about you know, prayer and, and things like that and how we apply these in just a little bit. Let's move on now, though, to Psalm 68, pretty long psalm. And, and this is a psalm of David, we notice, and it says, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, a song. And it's interesting, most commentators believe the reference here is when David brought the ark into Jerusalem. So, so the, the ark... Yeah, I don't have time to go into it, but it wasn't in Jerusalem. David had it brought into Jerusalem, and so it's a celebration. It's, it's a praise. Now, what's interesting, too, is many commentators believe that Psalm 68 is actually the most difficult psalm to interpret. That it's the most difficult psalm to really understand what's going on. And so, you know, as I, I went through it, there's a lot of places in here. I'm like, I don't exactly know what's going on. And so I'm going to leave it to you to try to figure those things out if you want to. I'm just going to try to give us some principles and ideas and applications out of this passage. So let's jump into these first three verses. It says, let God arise. Let his enemies be scattered. Let those who hate him flee before him as smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of the Lord. But let the righteous be glad, and let them rejoice before God. Yes, let them rejoice exceedingly. Okay. So here, what I want you to see in these first three verses is talking about God arising and scattering his enemies and and those who who hate him, they're fleeing from him, and they're melting like wax. But we also see at the same time that the the righteous are rejoicing. They're rejoicing before God. They're rejoicing exceedingly. Here's what I want you to see. Same God. Okay, this is the same God, the same presence, but there are very, very different reactions. So, the problem we realize is not with God. The problem is with man. You see, an unbeliever here uh, so this, so what we have in these first couple of verses or you know, is the, the, the unrepentant unbeliever, right? So an unrepentant unbeliever comes into the presence of the Lord and wants to flee, flee from it, but a repentant believer rejoices in the presence of God. And so here's the vital point, OK? That, that, that this, this idea of presence of God, that, that's the key to life. Okay, this is the key to reality. That, that God created us to be in fellowship with him. All right? I'm a big believer that if you don't understand the book of Genesis, not only can you not understand the rest of the Bible, you can't understand life. Okay, so God created Adam and Eve to be in fellowship with him. It, it's, and, and I would love to know kind of how this worked out but it says that he would go and visit them in the the cool of the evening. He would go and walk with them. But we know that that sin caused them to hide from him, caused them to go off on their own. And and so the thing to kind of consider as we think about verses one through three, I, I really want you to take it to heart is, do you want the presence of God in your life? Do you want God to show up? Because I guarantee you, some days he shows up and it's going to be like when you're walking on the beach in the morning, right? The gentle lapping of the waves. <laughs> okay. And some days when he shows up, it's going to be a hurricane. Some days when he shows up, it's, it's, it's going to be like, did you have to show up in such a big way? <laughs> could, you, could, you, could you hold it back just a little bit? And as I was thinking about this presence of God and why this is so important is because we live here on earth for a very short amount of time and God's ultimate purpose is to bring us to heaven. But here's the deal about heaven. Heaven is primarily about God. Heaven is primarily about God and it's about his presence. So oftentimes we think about heaven as a place where, okay, I'm finally not gonna have pain and you know, I'm gonna get to run again, I'm gonna do all these things. And those are all great, but that's not the key to heaven. The key to heaven is not getting out of having to do our taxes anymore. Yes, that's gonna be over. It's not any of those things. Heaven is about the presence of God. And and try this on for size. Think of this through. Heaven is primarily about God and secondarily about us, okay? Heaven would still be heaven without us, but it would not be heaven without God. Heaven is still going to be heaven if some humans don't show up, but heaven isn't going to be heaven without God. What does that tell us? Well, heaven's not about us. Heaven's about God. He invites us to come. He invites us to have fellowship with it. But as I've said this more and more and more, I don't know what God's doing because heaven's finding its way into every message lately. If you are going to spend the rest of eternity enjoying his presence and experiencing him and getting to know him more and more and growing in him, then why not start that now? Because really it says something about our hearts, if I don't really want to be around God, I really don't want to have a relationship with him, I don't really want his presence with me, I don't really want to think about him, then what makes you think you're going to enjoy heaven? Because that's where he is. And so it's important for us to understand that this is my point. If we're believers, to ask ourselves, are we rejoicing in the presence of the Lord? And if we're not, here's what's happened. Something else has gotten in the way. Something else has consumed our view. Do, you know, do we want more of him, or are we fleeing from his presence, seeking all that the world has to offer? And we kind of get soft. Because, you know, I, I've said this a lot to my kids at school, and, and they're going to get sick of hearing this, but I talk to them a lot about the rectangle in their pocket. Talk to them about their phone. That, that, that steals, for the most part, their presence away from anything around them. From experiencing the Lord for experiencing each other. And and so so I want to turn to Matthew chapter 10 for just a moment. Would you turn to Matthew chapter 10 as we're really thinking about the presence of the Lord? Matthew chapter 10. And I would encourage you, if you haven't been in the Gospels a while, you know, go back through the Gospels. Because you're gonna see some hard things. The, the, the waves are going to come against you. So Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 39, Jesus says something very hard here. Matthew 10, starting verse 34, he says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. This is radical. What in the world? Now, let's not misunderstand Jesus, okay? Jesus isn't showing up to your Thanksgiving dinner and just saying something that he knows is going to set everybody off. Okay, that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about loyalty, He's talking about who we are most loyal to, okay? And so then he says, here it is. This is where he makes it clear. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow me after me is not worthy of me. And he who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Radical. Jesus is saying, I must be the unequivocal number one in your life. can't be your spouse is more important than I am. It can't be your kids are more important than I am. It can't be your job is more important. Anything else, I have to be number one. And and really what he's echoing here is the the first commandment, right? Exodus chapter 20, verse three, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, Now here's the great irony in how he works. When you say to the Lord Jesus... I want to love you more than my spouse, more than my children, more than myself, anyone. I I want to love you most. I want you to be primary. I want to be all about you. Here's what happens. You actually, for the very first time, start loving your spouse rightly. You start loving your children rightly. You start having a right view of yourself because everything can only be put in order as he comes first. The the greatest commandments are these. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You can only live life rightly if you keep them in that order. When you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he's the main focus of your life, then all of a sudden you start seeing people for what they are, people made in God's image, people for whom Christ died, people that that he loves and wants to do a work in their life, and you start interacting with them well. But this world lies to you and says that you're number one, and you're first, and you're king, and you're these, and you're that, and it's not true. And so we end up living these lives where we don't want God's presence because God creeps in and says, you're not number one. In fact, I do not want to tell you where you're on the list. <laughs> he said, I'm number one, and then there's others, and we'll take care of that. And as you love me and as you love others, the, the other things will take care of themselves. So as we think, I encourage you to think about those things as we move back now to Psalm 68, moving into verse 4. It says, sing to God, sing praises to his name, extol him who rides on the clouds by his name Yah, which is a shortened version of Yahweh, and rejoice before him. And so again, this is just praise the Lord. We've seen this over and over again in the Psalms, and it's good to remind ourselves again and again is we are to praise the Lord. In fact, we saw last week, Hebrews 13, verse 15, it says, By him, that's Jesus, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Now, there are some people, you know, and this, is, this happened, I don't know if it's, it's popular nowadays, but just like going around saying, Praise the Lord, like inappropriate times. You know, you're, you know, oh man, I got my order from Cain's on time. Praise the Lord! You know, and this, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And it's just over and over again. That's not what it means to continually offer the sacrifice of praise. It means to live a life that's pleasing to him, right? It means to, you know, give glory to God when you should give glory. When you see a sunset and you just like see the beauty and the pinks and the blues and the oranges and all those things is just say, Lord, thank you for making that. You're the one who made that. That's what it means to do those things, Let's look at verses five and six now. It says, A father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation. God sets the solitary in families, he brings out those who are bound into prosperity, and but the rebellion I'm sorry, but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. Okay. So this idea, this picture, this truth all throughout the scriptures that God has compassion on the weak. God has compassion on the afflicted, on the lonely. And so we, what we really have in these verses is a focus on family. And so that, that God was going to provide for these people. That James talks about, you know, that you know, true, true religion is ministering to widows and to orphans. Now, how did God take care of this in the Old Covenant? Well, in the Old Covenant, they had tribes, right? They had these different tribes. And so if someone in your tribe was destitute, the other people in that tribe were to help them, to care for them. Well, what do we have under the new covenant? And the new covenant, we have the church. You see, the church is how God fulfills this. The church is to be a family. That's a reality. Now, if you spend enough time with family, you're going to get irritated with each other, right? That's just how it is. Families irritate each other. When you put sinners together in close proximity, you're going to have problems. It's inevitable. But but what we want to do is just to view our local church fellowship as a family. And like anything else in life, when it comes to a church fellowship, you get out what you put in. You get out of that thing what you put in. And so the more that you and I invest in the people of our local church fellowship, the more we're going to get out of it the more we're going to experience this familial life. In, in all honesty, as, as I say this, as I encourage you to invest in one another here and to, to have fellowship and to spend time together and to get to know each other and to pray for each other, I'm, I'm, in all honesty, I'm not saying that I may benefit. I'm not trying to collect people. Man, let me, let me feel good about myself. Look at how many people are coming to this church. It almost fills a room after 20 years. Wow, way to go, Steve. That's not what it is. See, I, I, in all honesty, I want you to benefit. I want you to experience family life. I, I want you to be vulnerable with one another. I want you to be open with one another and see the incredible blessing that comes that God set up as we have that kind of fellowship together. Right, let's move on to verses seven through 10. Oh God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, Selah, the earth shook, the heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. You, O God, sent a plentiful rain whereby you confirmed your inheritance when it was weary. Your congregation dwelt in it. You, O God, provided uh, from, your gener- from your goodness for the poor. Okay, this is a, a reminder of what happened in the, in the wilderness, right? When they left Egypt, the children of Israel and how God provided for them. So it's really the fact of the reminder that God provided for Israel in the wilderness wanderings. And if you read through the scriptures, you'll see how often they talk about that, how often they talk about how God provided for them. Now also, please understand when the children of Israel were in the wilderness, it was a difficult time. It was a lot of hardship, a lot of difficult things happened, and a lot of them, you know, disobeyed, and maybe they don't always understand, well, why is things hard? But please understand that that those people that were in the wilderness, they're linked to you. God provided for them, and from one of those tribes came the Messiah, Jesus Christ, And so you and I are forever linked to them. And so they went through those difficulties and and, and God has blessed us through that. Let's move on to verses 11 through 14. It says, The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those who proclaimed it. Kings of armies flee. They flee. And she who remains at home divides a spoil. Though you lie down among the sheepfolds, you will be like the wings of a dove covered with silver and her feathers with yellow gold. When the Almighty scattered kings in it, it was white as snow in Zalman. All right, so this is the section that I was like, huh, (laughs) well, that's interesting. I don't exactly know what's happening here. Um, And so this is a really difficult to understand passage, but here's the big thing I get out of it. The big idea, God wins. Okay, this is the big idea that no matter what battles happen, no matter what takes place, no matter what enemies come up, ultimately God wins. Now if you want to know, you know how a book, how a novel is going to turn out, you can go to the end of the novel. And so, But the same thing is true when it comes to nonfiction. When it comes to the true things, we're told at the end of this book how it's all going to turn out. So at any time, you on your own can just sit at the book of Revelation and and see, are God's enemies going to be defeated? And you go and you turn to Revelation chapter 19 and you see the Antichrist is defeated and you see the false prophet is defeated. And you see the armies gathered against Jesus are defeated. And then you look a little further and you see that Satan and his demons are defeated. And then you see, go to the great white throne judgment in chapter 20 and you see that everyone who rejected the true and living God is defeated. And you realize that Jesus has destroyed all his enemies. He's defeated all his enemies. And then the new heaven and the new earth are established. And that should bring great consolation to us because God will do this. God has promised us. But too often, we spend so much time, go on the internet to just inundate, to baptize ourselves in the problems of this world. And to be discouraged and to be upset because people make money through advertisers, on our discontent, on our fearfulness, and on our unrest. We allow ourselves to be discipled by unbelievers, to tell us what's important, to tell us what we should focus on, instead of going to the word of God, God, sitting under the Holy Spirit's tutelage, and saying, you know what? I'm just going to take care of my business today, because I know God's going to work this whole thing out. He's going to take care of it. Let's move on to verses 15 and 16. It says, the mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. The mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you fume with envy, you mountain of many peaks? This is the mountain which God desires to dwell in. Yes, the Lord will dwell in it forever. So it's really interesting here. Um, David actually kind of, uh, he treats these mountains like they have personality. Guys, it's, it's, it's a thing that sometimes happens, you know, in literature, And so what he's saying here is ultimately that God chose Mount Zion over Mount Bashan. And so that's really interesting because Mount Bashan is greater than Mount Zion. So what David is pointing out is the fact that God doesn't always choose that thing that is greater, that thing that is bigger, that thing that's more wonderful, that God actually chose a lesser mountain to dwell in. And so the lesson is that God chooses differently than we do. You know, and there's this common thing, especially among Christians sometimes, and, and, and I think it still happens today, we're like, oh, if only that celebrity would get saved, then God could really work in this world. Because <laughs> that celebrity has a platform and all this kind of stuff, and, and they're the key. And they're not the key. We have to realize that God often chooses the overlooked ones. This, this is very familiar to us with David, Right? That David, he's the the last son. When when Samuel comes to anoint the new king and Jesse brings all his sons in, he doesn't even consider bringing in David. He brings in all these other sons because surely God wouldn't put David. He's the youngest. He's the runt. Just leave him out there with the sheep. And yet he's the very one. And and so this is what the Lord said to, to Samuel. He says, the Lord doesn't see as man sees. Because the the, the man sees the outward appearance, or literally in the Hebrew, the man looks at the face, but God looks at the heart. And so I want to encourage you, when you realize this, so would you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 for just a moment? Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. All right. As you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, here's one of the outs that we give ourselves. We say, well... I, I don't really, I really can't serve the Lord because I'm just not as amazingly eloquent as Steve. Yeah. Thank you, thank you for that. Um, or I, I'm not this, or I'm not that, or I haven't had enough schooling, or I'm not tall enough, or I'm not short enough, or I'm not this, or there's all kinds of excuses that we give for, for why we shouldn't be those that God uses. But I, I want you to see 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, and Paul, Paul is encouraging the Corinthian church to realize that they were kind of nobodies, right? From the world system, but God loved them, God chose them, God gifted them, and therefore they could be used of him. God can use any of us. So 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 26, he says to the Corinthians, for you see your calling, brethren, here it is, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. So he's not being insulting to them. He's just saying, hey guys, you know, not many here have PhDs. Not many of you guys are schooled philosophers. He says, and you guys aren't mighty. You're, you're not powerful. You're, you're not, you know, super rich and strong and all these things. He says, you're not, you're not noble. You're not of, of kind of some royal lineage. None of those things. But here's what he says. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to the shame the things that are mighty. And the base things of the world, the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. And so, so God wants to use us with all our faults and failures and weaknesses and past mess ups and all those things. And God says, I know what I was doing when I chose you. I I want to make something great out of you, not because you're great, because I'm great. The Lord is great. And so then he says, But of him, so he's saying, But of, of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that as it is written, He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. The Lord Jesus is your wisdom. He's your righteousness, he's your sanctification, he's your redemption, he's the one who wants to lead you and guide you and mature you and refine you and use you. So when you and I submit to that, when we stop looking in the mirror and saying, well, what about this and what about this gray hair and what about these wrinkles and what about these things? No, 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 no. Get your eyes off of yourself and onto Jesus. Get your eyes off of your failings and your faults and all those things and say, what can God do? What can God do with this weak vessel? Let's turn back to Psalm 68. Moving on to verses 17 and 18 now. It says, the chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands. The Lord is among them in Sinai in the holy place. You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious that the Lord God might dwell there. So again, we have this power of God to defeat enemies. So please understand this. You and I, in our own power, we have no hope against the demonic. We have no hope against the rulers of this world. We have no hope in all these. You and I have no hope on our own against our own sin natures, against our own evil desires. And so we need God to be the victor. We need God to be the one who works through us and on us to to give us the victory. And so it's the power of God to defeat enemies. One thing that you might also notice there in verse 18 is Paul used verse 18 in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, to talk about how when Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave gifts through his Holy Spirit to the church. And so so Paul uses that um, in the New Testament. You can read more about that on your own later. Let's move on to verse 19. It says, blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits, the God of our salvation, Selah. That's awesome. God provides for us daily. God provides for us daily, day by day. Now, many of us struggle to believe this. We struggle to trust God on a daily basis. It doesn't matter how many days in the past God has provided for us. We're like, well, today's going to be different. Today is going to be the day where we, I can't trust him. Here's what I would encourage you to do. And I think this is really good for any of us is take some time to read Matthew five through seven, take some time to read the Sermon on the Mount because the Sermon on the Mount is really about daily life with the Lord. Is, is about daily struggles and, and daily choosing and daily trusting. You read the model prayer, you read the passage on not worrying, on seeking first the kingdom, all of those things. I would encourage you, if, if, if you could somehow, you know, in your mind, in your heart, in your spirit, kind of settle down and live in the Sermon on the Mount. Live Matthew 5 through 7. Let it be how, how you conduct yourself, how you trust the Lord, how you work day by day. You're, you're going to see an incredible difference in your life continue on to verse 20. It says, our God is the God of salvation and to God the Lord belong escapes from death. It's a reminder that God is able to keep us from death until he decides that it's time for us to go to him. Please please understand that. God is able to keep us alive on this planet until he takes us home. And we have to also look at death that way. Death is God deciding to take us home. Death is not, you know, this thing or that thing or the other. It says in Hebrews that Satan has always used death to cause men to fear, but that Jesus overcame that. So for you and I, we want to realize, okay, God's fully able to keep me alive until he decides to take me home. And then also when that time comes, please understand, when that time comes for God to take us home, this is what we read in Psalm 116, verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. That, that when that day comes, and it will come for us apart from the rapture of the church, that day comes that God decides to take us home, our death will be precious in his sight. Our death will be something that, that is, I would argue, wonderful to him because he's going to get to see us face to face. You know, we, we, we're going to see him face to face, but I, I believe full, full-heartedly that when, when Jesus Christ embraces us, and I believe that he will embrace us, I hope this doesn't sound blasphemous, I think it's going to be even more important to him than it is to us. There, there's a fullness because, you know what, think about our relationship with the Lord. He's done way more than we've done. He created us. He's he's born with us in all of our sins. He died on the cross for us. He's maintained us and kept us every day of our life. So he loves us more than we love ourselves. He's looking forward to that day, but he has purposes and plans for us while we're here. Verses 21 through 23 says, but God will wound the head of his enemies, the hairy scalp of those who still goes on in his trespasses. The Lord said, I will bring back from Bashan, I will bring them back from the depths of the sea, that your foot may crush them in blood, the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from your enemies. All right, so some some vivid imagery here, (laughs) some vivid language, and us sitting in relative peace and security in this building, we kind of look at that and say, well, that seems big and mean. Think about the ancient world. Think about the stuff David had seen. David, to have security, he had to fight, right? And so this hairy scalp in the ancient world, oftentimes warriors would let their hair grow and be all matted and nasty as kind of psychological warfare to make themselves look more fearsome and scary, And so this is what David is saying here is that God will defeat those enemies. God will take them down. He will have victory. And this imagery there in verse 27 of your foot may crush them in blood, it really kind of reminds us of Genesis 3.15 about how the the Messiah would crush the head of Satan. So we look at verses 21 through 23, and if you find yourself in that place and say, well, I'm an enemy of the Lord. That seems really scary. There's an easy remedy. Surrender to the Lord. Okay. It says, while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. So anyone who's willing to lay down their arms and come to Christ, he will receive them. Verses 24 through 27, it says, They have seen your procession, O God, the procession of my God, my king, into the sanctuary. The singers went before, the players on instruments followed after. Among them were maidens playing timbrels. Bless God in the congregations, the Lord from the fountain of Israel. There is little Benjamin, their leader, the princes of Judah and their company, the princes of Zebulun and the princes of Naphtali. And so really what we have here is kind of a, 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 picturesque, a picturesque version of how the ark came into Jerusalem. So, so David's writing about this, and he's excited that the ark is there, and so it's just, it's just a picture of, of this parade coming into Jerusalem. Verses 28 through 31 says, Your God has commanded your strength. Strengthen, O God, what you have done for us. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring presents to you. "'Rebuke the beasts of the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the, of the peoples, till everyone submits himself with pieces of silver, scatter the people who delight in war.'" Envoys will come out of Egypt. Ethiopia will quickly stretch out her hands to God. And so what we have really in this imagery is, you know, the the people being at peace with Jerusalem, of submitting themselves to the Israelites. And we know that as David, you know, David fought hard and he established peace. And then Solomon got to enjoy that. Solomon got to enjoy peace around. And we know the day is coming, as I mentioned earlier, when we'll have the millennial kingdom, where the nations will come and pay tribute to Christ, and peace will, ru- will rule and reign on the earth. Verses 32 through 34, it says, Sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth. Oh, sing praises to the Lord, Selah. To him who rides on the heav- the who rides on the heaven of heavens, which were of old, indeed he sends out his voice, a mighty voice, ascribe strength to God. His excellence is over Israel, and his strength is in the clouds. And so this is just beautiful imagery of the strength and glory of the Lord, the power of the Lord, his rule over creation. And then finally, our final verse, verse thirty-five: O oh God, you are more awesome than your holy places. The God of Israel is he who gives strength and power to his people. Blessed be God. Okay, two quick things I want to bring out of this. First of all, notice in the the first part of verse 35, God is more awesome than his holy places. So in other words, God is more awesome than the tabernacle. God is more awesome than the ark. God is more awesome than the waters of the Caribbean. God is more awesome, you know, than than any mountaintop, any starry sky, anything. God is more awesome than his creation. And so think about that. this, this, is, this is, goes beyond imagining because you and I would love to travel to these places to see these wonderful sights, the aurora borealis or see this or that, or if they could take a ship that would take you out to see these stars and the nebulae and all that kind of stuff, we'd say, oh, that's amazing. It says, God is greater than that. God is greater than all of these things. And so it's important for us to understand that. So for you and I, a good helpful reminder is Colossians chapter three, verse two, that set set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. To set our mind on the Lord and to realize that he is more wonderful, more beautiful than any of these things. And then the last thing I want to bring out here in verse 35, it tells us that the God of Israel is he who gives strength and power to his people. Seek the Lord for his strength and power. Seek the Lord for his strength and power in other people's lives. And so pray for that. And then when you're finished, then, then pray some more for that. And then keep praying for that. Remember, God convicted me of this week. Romans 8.28 says that all things are working together for the good. But you know what? You're not the one doing that. You're not the one working together for the good. And I'm not the one working together for the good. God is the one working it together for the good. God is the one working those things together for the good because he has that strength and power to do that. And and so I would encourage you, as you think about the strength and power that God will give to his people, I would encourage you to go over everyone's head. I would encourage you to go over your state senator's head. I would go over your spouse's head, go over your boss's head, go directly to the one who actually can do something about it, and that's the Lord. Go over everyone's head. When, When you interact with somebody... And somebody, you know, they're, they're rude to you and mean to you. You don't need to say anything to them. Go over their head. <laughs> Pray to the Lord for them. Pray what's going on. And, and this will give, I believe, you and I great peace because the scripture says to be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And the peace that surpasses understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. All right. So as we close, I just want to give you encouragement to fear the Lord, to just get on board with what he's doing. Because as the old song says, don't go changing just to please me. God's not going to go changing just to please us. God can't change. God is immutable. He is who he is. But if we would fear him, get in line with what he is doing, seek to conform ourselves to him by the power of his spirit, by the power he provides, then what will happen is we'll find joy and peace in him. You see, so much of our frustration is a result of our inability to get God and others to do what we want them to do. But God hasn't called us to that. Instead of being frustrated, let's pray for God's will to be done in the lives of others, in the lives of ourselves, and let's pray that we would do what God wants us to do.